Well, I last mentioned this story five years ago, so some of you new city old-timers may have heard it, uh, but Haru Onoda was a Japanese army officer who fought in the Second World War. And in December 1944, eight months before Japan was defeated by the Allies, Onoda was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines, where he was ordered to do all that he could to hamper enemy attacks, including destroying the airstrip and uh, the pier that was in the harbor. Onada's orders also stated that he was under no circumstances, under no circumstances was he to surrender or take his own life. Two months later, United States and Philippine Commonwealth forces took the island, and soon all but Onada and three of his men had either died or surrendered. And so, in obedience to his orders, Onada ordered his men to take to the hills, where they planned to continue their guerrilla campaign against the enemy. Six months later, in August of 1945, the war ended. Japan surrendered, but Onada and his three men up in the mountains didn't know about it. They eventually found a leaflet dropped from a plane which declared that the war was over, but they mistrusted the leaflet. They thought it was Allied propaganda. And so Onada remained in the jungle conducting guerrilla warfare for another 30 years. And he killed, during peacetime, 30 people. Over those decades, one of the men with Onada surrendered to the authorities, and the remaining two were killed in shootouts with the police. Finally, in 1974, Onada was found in his jungle hideout. But Onada would not believe the war was over, and he would not cease his guerrilla activities until he had a written order from his World War II commanding officer stating that he was relieved of duty. This was a man who had been working in a bookstore for the last 30 years. Now, Onada had actually murdered people during peacetime. So the question was, should he be charged for his crimes? Crimes he committed in genuine ignorance. Well, the circumstances were taken into consideration and it was decided that Arnada was not working with enough information to know that what he was doing was wrong. And so Arnada received a pardon from President Ferdinand Marcos. Two weeks ago, New City, we read these glorious words in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If, if, you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which means Jew and Gentile alike must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ or not at all. Sinners must believe the truth that Jesus died according to scripture. He was raised on the third day, according to scripture. He was exalted to the Father's right hand. He is exalted as the Lord, and he bestows salvation on all those who place faith in him. But of course, to believe this good news, to believe the gospel, certain preconditions must be met. As Paul argued in Romans chapter 1, the general revelation of God's eternal power and divine nature seen in creation, that isn't sufficient to save anyone. Preachers must be sent. Preachers must preach the gospel. And people must hear the preaching. Only then 
Can sinners call upon the Lord for salvation? And so the big question the Apostle Paul asks in the remaining verses of Romans chapter 10 is this. Was calling on the name of the Lord for salvation a realistic possibility for Jews in the first century? Had the preconditions been met, were in fact preachers sent to Israel? Did those preachers preach the gospel to them? And did they hear the preaching? Or were first century Jews, at least by the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, like Heru Onada, living in ignorance of what God had accomplished on Calvary's Hill 25 years before, and so without blame for their disbelief. And it's essential that Paul address this matter, this, uh, and because just as today, uh, most Jews at this time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, or that right standing with God was found through faith in him alone. But was that due, Paul's arguing here, he's asking it, was that due to a lack of faithful preaching? Had there been a, a missions deficit Look at chapter 10 of the book of Romans, verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? The definitive answer, of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Brothers and sisters, God has been faithful the whole way through. Uh, he made covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs back in Genesis. And Israel, the children of Abraham, stood as the natural heirs to those promises. And at the proper time, God the Father sent God the Son to fulfill those promises. And he sovereignly ensured that the good news of what he had accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin was preached to the nation of Israel. God raised up missionaries, apostles, and faithful Christians, men and women who preached the good news everywhere Jews had a community. So, all possible excuse Israel might have for her failure to respond to God's offer of righteousness in Jesus, the Christ, has been removed. Uh, did they not hear? Of course they did. Good grief, the Bible would be turned on its head if they didn't. The fact is, the majority of Israelites were just plain obstinate and disobedient. As we saw two weeks ago, Israel deliberately rejected the preaching of the gospel and instead sought to establish her own righteousness through the works of the law. And so Israel stands justly condemned before God. That's the argument. Which is astonishing. It's an astonishing thing to say because she was the recipient of numerous and detailed prophecies about God's plans and purposes. Uh, Israel should have understood that the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ would result in her judgment. Uh, her own scriptures make that perfectly clear. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious. By those who are not a nation, I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. 
I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. You see, who's, who's he talking about there in those verses? Uh, not a nation, no understanding, did not seek after me. He's talking about Gentiles. Verse 21, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And yet, even in this rejection, our sovereign God is working out his sovereign salvation purposes. How so? Now hear this. Because Israel's repudiation of the blessings naturally belonging to her has now caused those covenantal blessings to be diverted into another wider stream. Now the blessings of the gospel are flowing to the whole world. And this too was prophesied in Old Testament scripture. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. I asked then, he just keeps asking these questions, did God reject his people? And that's just a natural thing to be asking at this point. Um, Israel has made the biggest, most sinful, rebellious decision a people can. They've deliberately, deliberately rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would not, should not, God in turn reject them. Shouldn't God say, all right, everybody out of the pool, you had your shot, I've been more than patient. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. This, this stubborn, deliberate refusal to obey me has been going on for centuries and centuries. Well, no more. I'm sick of it. I disown you, Israel. You reject my son, that's the last straw. I reject you. You are no longer my people and I am no longer your God. Wouldn't that just sort of stand to reason? The Apostle Paul gives an emphatic no. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So do you see, Paul's saying he is living proof that God has not totally abandoned the descendants of Abraham. We can't say that God has cast away the Israelites if Israelites are still being saved. Verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. They have not been cast aside. And Paul here is not talking about elect individual Jews whom God foreknew. Uh, that would be introducing something completely foreign to this context. He's speaking of national, covenantal, on that kind of a level. God has not rejected the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. How does Paul know that? How can Paul say that? Because there is a, a Jewish remnant of Christian believers chosen by grace. And that fact is evidence of God's gracious, present faithfulness to the nation. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has preserved for himself a faithful remnant. To put that another way, I'm going to kind of repeat this twice because it's everything, guys. God is presently fulfilling 
his covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs back in Genesis by saving some Israelites. God is presently fulfilling his covenantal promise to the Jewish patriarchs by saving some Israelites. Brothers and sisters, that is so important to understand. Our Bibles do not make sense unless we understand what Paul is saying here. This isn't just abstract theology. This upholds God's integrity and his covenantal faithfulness across all salvation history. This must be the case. God's past covenantal promises to the nation of Israel do not contradict this surprising yet foreordained turn in the history of redemption when God is saving only some Israelites through faith in Jesus the Messiah and many Gentiles. And truth be told, the situation Israel finds herself in presently, where there are almost no faithful Jews, isn't that unique in Israel's history. Look at chapter 11, verse 2b. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he appealed to God against Israel? And then he starts quoting 1 Kings chapter 19. This is centuries before. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And, and Paul here, he is pushing this, this unflattering, sinful Old Testament example deliberately out into the spotlight. He's forcing all of us, all of his readers, to ask a very important question. It's this. Because there were only 7,000 faithful Jews left who had not bowed the knee to Baal, did that make God unfaithful? Did that make God unjust? Was, was God untrue to his covenantal obligations because only 7,000 were faithful? Had God reneged on his promises to Israel in the days of Elijah? Of course not. I mean, who, who's to blame for this? The people are to blame. Almost the entire nation had defected from the covenant to worship Baal. 99.9% of the nation were indifferent to their God. They had apostatized en masse. We're talking about entrenched, state-sponsored Baal worship, right? But even so, even so, God was faithful. He did not cast the nation, his people, off entirely, right? He preserved 7,000 as a testament to his grace. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Ah, now the connection is so clear. Look at verse 6. And if by grace, if it's by God's unmerited favor, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Eusidi, do you see how careful the Apostle is being to maintain a balance throughout these chapters as he speaks about Israel? Yes, beyond a doubt, God's Word affirms a continuing role for Israel in salvation history. That must not be denied. God has not abandoned His people. 
God has not rejected his people. God has not written his people off. But Israel cannot claim this role as a matter of right. There is a faithful remnant chosen by God's electing grace. And God is entirely free to bestow his blessing on whomever he chooses. 7,000 people, 7 million people, three, an innumerable host, zero. Brothers and sisters, entire continents in gospel darkness for millennia. You and I being saved from our sin. You and I not being saved from our sin. In each case, it's God's right to choose. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But the very notion that there's a Jewish remnant who are receiving the blessings of God's sovereign choice, that implies that many other Israelites are not, as is God's right. And it's to this group that Paul draws particular attention in verses 7 through 10. Look at verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. And what was it? Do you recall that Israel sought to obtain, but they didn't, even though they went for it with great earnestness? It was their righteous standing before God. Remember my, my, my uh, gold miner analogy, right? Why didn't they obtain it? We saw this two weeks ago because they, they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works of the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Instead, they sought to establish their own righteousness. But what Israel as a whole didn't attain, Paul tells us in verse 7, he says the elect did. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So there we have it. In God's dealings with corporate Israel, God has saved a remnant, but he has hardened the majority. But, but, and if I had symbols up here, right, I now would be clashing together, making a glorious cacophony, but... This hardening of Israel as a national group is temporary. God has a plan, brothers and sisters. He always has a plan. His plan is to set Israel aside in order to save more Gentiles and thus provoke Israel to jealousy and then, in turn, save more Israelites. You know, what's that? <laughs> Come again, Pastor John. Israel rejects the gospel, and so salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles, but then it bounces back to Israel again. That's the argument in Romans chapter 11. Uh, look at your handout. Just above point number four, one question remains. What about Israel's future? Is Israel's, Israel's rejection, is it final? Will the beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel permanently remain merely a remnant within Israel? Is that what we're looking at forever and ever? Point number four. God is saving Gentiles to make Israel envious. Look at verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Has Israel fallen into irretrievable spiritual ruin? That's the question he's asking. 
can Israel as a whole still be saved or is it just this elect remnant that God's going to be saving in every generation from now until judgment day? Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. On the contrary, as John Stott puts it, far from them being on a downward spiral, the spiral is upward. God's purpose in rejecting these disobedient Israelites has an upward trajectory. Israel's rejection of their Messiah is actually the first step in an unfolding process. Israel's sin is the starting point of a process that will lead back to salvation blessing for Israel. Look at 11b. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And here we see God's purpose, his sovereign purpose, brothers and sisters, and in including Gentiles in his salvation plan. Do you hear how I phrase that? Including Gentiles in his salvation plan. We're not, we're not coming first here in an order of priority. It's to provoke Israel to jealousy, to make Israel envious of our covenantal blessings. Guys, we need to let that sink in. That is, that is a profound thing to say. That holds our Bible together. Have you ever thought of Israel's unbelief and your salvation, if you're a Christian Gentile here today, in those kinds of terms? Have you ever thought of it like that? It's God's intention that we all do. This is why he breathed out this text that we might know this. Look at verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles. And as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry. Why? In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And what is envy? It's simply the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And because we're all sinners, that's the desire we're all well acquainted with. Uh, we can think of a hundred bad examples of envy, but not all envy is bad. If the thing desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, then to covet it and to envy those who have it is not a sin. It's good. It's proper. And there is one thing in this life above all else that people should envy in others, that sinners must covet with all their heart, the salvation blessings of the new covenant secured in Jesus Christ. Not to envy such a thing. If somebody has that and you do not, is attributable to profound spiritual darkness and sin. This is a good thing to envy. And Paul believes that Israel, as they see Gentiles enjoying the messianic blessings promised first of all to them, because they are, after all, the natural heirs of these blessings, when Israel sees our reconciliation to God and to each other, our, our forgiveness, love, joy, peace in the Spirit, Israel will covet those blessings for herself. And she will repent and believe in Jesus in order to secure them. Thus, provoked to envy, Israel will be saved. Now, 
before we start thinking, what a, what a glorious day in the future that will be. Speed the day, Lord Jesus, and then move on to the next verse. We need to stop and, and consider just how we fit into the sovereign plan. And this is, this is sort of the major point of application in my sermon today. My, my fellow Gentile brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I speak to you. God means to make Jews jealous through our salvation. Now, the day and the hour, the moment in the history of redemption when that will happen, we don't know. Which means it needs to be a constant component of our Christian life. We always need to be thinking how can I advance this purpose of God? How can I make the Jewish people I'm friends with, work with, go to school with, my Jewish neighbors, how can I make them jealous of the fact that it's the people of Jesus Christ who are inheriting the promises of Father Abraham? And perhaps that's an entirely new way to be thinking about your evangelism. I'm well aware this isn't the most politically correct counsel, but then biblical truth seldom is. But the whole spirit of our interaction with our Jewish friends should be like the father to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal. Come on into the party. You belong here. Cindy, given the context in which the Lord saved you and your baptism next week, I trust this is a word in season, sister. You need to explain to your Jewish friends, I, a Gentile, have inherited the promise of Israel in Christ Jesus. I, who was once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But it's not just Cindy. It's for all of us. Uh, we, we can open up our Bibles. We need to open up our Bibles and explain the passages like Romans 2, 28 and 29, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we have become true Jews. Paul writes in verse 28 of Romans 2, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And then, with our Jewish friend beside us, we can open the Bible and explain Romans Galatians 3.7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, that's a thread that connects the whole story of the Bible together, all of God's salvation plan. All the covenants, all the promises belong to us and all who will one day trust the Messiah, Jesus. In this truth, brothers and sisters, we should just revel. We should be reveling in this. But in order to revel in this truth, in order to faithfully proclaim this truth, we first need to understand it, right? Which is why I'm preaching this text. <clears throat> Provoked to envy, Israel will be saved. We must believe that. Now, you can see at the top of your handout, this is step number three of God's sovereign salvation plan. Step number one. Israel rejects the gospel. Step number two, salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles. Step three, the salvation blessings of the Gentiles serve to make Israel envious, 
which in turn leads to Israel's full inclusion, verse 12 of chapter 11, and acceptance, verse 15 of chapter 11. Uh, but that's still to come, right? Step number three, that's in Israel's future, and Paul doesn't lay down a timeline for that. It may be 10 years from now. It may be 10,000. For all we know, we're in the early church period still. But as we see in step number four, what this envious conversion does is trigger the final resurrection. Step number four, the greater riches bestowed upon the world through Israel's full inclusion and acceptance is life from the dead. That is the resurrection after Christ returns in glory, the climactic end of salvation history. So I say, how is that for incentive to be evangelizing our Jewish friends and colleagues and neighbor and family? Man alive, you think every Bible-believing church in the city would be out on street corners in Toronto's Jewish community daily, right? Handing out gospel tracts. That is a, that is a huge thing to be saying here. Do, do, do you hear what the apostle is getting at? The, the greater riches bestowed upon the world through Israel's full inclusion and acceptance is the final resurrection and the climactic end of salvation history. Uh, and we come to this understanding by combining verses 12 and 15 of chapter 11. Now, I'm going to conclude the sermon with this section. Uh, we're going to pick up the rest of the chapter in two weeks' time after our sister Cindy's baptism. But before we look at this last little bit, <clears throat> let me qualify, guys, everything I'm about to say, all right? Jesus is returning. Jesus will judge the living and the dead in righteousness. Satan will be utterly defeated. And there is eternal resurrection life to be gained and an eternal hell to be shunned. And those are teachings all Christians must believe or we're not Christians in any biblical sense of that term. Uh, but where there can be legitimate disagreement amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is the timing and the order of events surrounding those incontestable biblical facts. Right? So that, that, it's a third level matter, uh, which is why when you read New City's Statement of Faith, you can go online and see our Constitution, you can see this, but our church's basic confession to which every member of this church must sign to without serious reservation, uh, there's, there is nothing, there is nothing about the Antichrist, there's nothing about the Millennium, there's nothing about the Final Tribulation or the mass conversion of Jews in the last days. Uh, I would argue, I would argue that all those things fit in there somewhere, and I have a pretty good idea of the order, too. Um, <clears throat> you might disagree. That's okay. The church statement of faith that you signed off on, member, only states that Jesus will return and judge the world. The details are deliberately left vague. That's because there are third-level beliefs concerning the return of Jesus that a Christian should be able to hold to and still attend a church where the leadership or other members in the church have a different understanding. So, you may not agree with my understanding that the salvation of Israel in the last days will kick off the resurrection, and that's okay. Uh, on a church fellowship, on a church membership level, as it concerns our love and our respect for one another, we need to be able to disagree on tertiary matters such as this. 
Uh, but I'm going to give it my all as we kind of go through this text and try to explain it, all right? But Which isn't to say, guys, by the way, that eschatology, the study of last things, is unimportant. Or even that all eschatological positions are created equal. Far from it, they're not. Eschatology is not all wishy-washy subjectivity, nor is it all just an inscrutable mystery so that every person's best guess is as good or biblically faithful as the next person's. It's not. No, what Christians believe about the particulars, the details of the last days and the return of Jesus Christ must always, always, always be informed by biblical texts. And not just one standalone text somewhere, but the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, as all the texts of Scripture fit together and cohere. So what I'm saying here is I would, I would argue that what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 11 fits in nicely with the book of Daniel, within the book of Revelation, with Matthew 24, whatever, whatever text you want to look at as it looks at the last day, it fits in, it coheres. So with all that under our belt, let's start landing the plane. I've just said that what this envious conversion of Israel does is trigger the final resurrection. And I believe we come to this understanding by combining verses 12 and 15. Look at verse 12 first. But if Israel's transgression, and that transgression is her rejection of Jesus and the righteousness of God offered through him alone. But if Israel's transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring now follow closely verse 12 tells us that through israel's sinful transgression gentiles have riches now the apostle paul says that twice in one verse and of course these riches are wrapped up with the promises of the new covenant with salvation itself but at the time of israel's full inclusion paul says gentiles will have greater riches how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? He writes that, right? So, now, that, that sounds very exciting. Just what might those riches be? Greater riches than we have now. You know, what greater riches, New City, are we still anticipating? That's what we have to ask as we read this text. Again, riches wrapped up with the promises of the new covenant, with salvation itself. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection... Right of God's grace in Christ, brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance of God's grace in Christ be but life from the dead? See, that's, that is the blessing. That is the greater riches bestowed upon the world through Israel's reconciliation. Life from the dead. The resurrection when Jesus returns in glory, the climactic end of salvation history. Beloved, just as Israel's rejection of the gospel triggers the stage of salvation history in which we are presently situated, a stage in which God is especially blessing Gentiles, so will Israel's full inclusion and acceptance trigger the climactic end of history, which means Israel has not been discarded from any further role in the plan of God. She is absolutely vital. So now all the biblical pieces start coming together. As we were reading through the book of Acts, what was God's purpose in Jews rejecting the gospel in town after town after town? Now we know. Now we're equipped 
with a divine perspective on the matter. Israel rejects the gospel, and so salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles. But then it bounces back to Israel again. Because at some point in the future, be it 10 years from now, be it 10,000 years from now, though they represent only one-fifth of 1% of the entire human race, the living biological children of Abraham, the natural heirs of God's promises to the patriarchs, Jews will be awakened by God's Holy Spirit to the realities of what God has accomplished in the death of His Son for sin. Jews will look upon Gentiles, people like you and me, people who are not a nation, who formerly had no understanding, who were not seeking God, who are not God's people, but who are now God's children. We are children of the living God. They will see all this. They will see our reconciliation with Yahweh through his crucified son, Jesus the Messiah, and be driven to godly jealousy. In holy envy for our covenantal blessing, blessings they deliberately forsook for these 2,000 years, they will repent and believe in Jesus, the Christ. And that, in turn, will trigger the resurrection when Jesus returns in glory. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, moments before you ascended into heaven, you commissioned your church with a great task. You said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Lord, you've called all of us, every Christian in every place, to undertake this great commission for your glory and in the life context you've called us to as individuals. Holy God, we pray you would work a number of things in our hearts today as this glorious text rings in our ears and all to your glory. We remember the Apostles' words of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Lord, we pray that the members of New City would better understand your sovereign salvation plan today through the preaching of your word, that Israel rejects the gospel, and so salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles, but then it bounces back to Israel again. As the Apostle Paul worships, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And may this mystery be ever before our eyes as we seek to live as Gentile Christians in the context to which you've called us here in Toronto, Canada. Canada's Jewish population is 400,000 strong, which makes the largest Jewish community outside of Israel and the United States. So spur us on, Lord, as Christian Gentiles to faithfully proclaim the gospel to our Jewish friends and neighbors what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Banish all evangelistic laziness and cowardice. Banish all fear of political correctness to the truth of your word that was preached today, the promises, Lord, of your word, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Give us hearts that love the gospel, Lord, 
And give us hearts that love Jews, hearts that care for Jews. May our desire be the same as your desire, Heavenly Father, may be to see Jews saved through faith in the Messiah, your own dear Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We pray this in his name. Amen.